0: You've taken over your senses for the duration of this broadcast. You are helpless to resist. We have taken control for your own sake. There are things you must know. This is Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton.
1: And welcome to another episode of the Paranoia Podcast. I am Olaf Phillips. I am the publisher and owner of Paranoia Magazine. On the line, I have Ron Patton, our uh, editor-in-chief. Ron.
2: Hey, how's it going, everyone?
1: Ron Patton here. That was good, Ron. That was That's really little good. It's a better than
2: before, right? I think there was there. just dead air last time. It's like, okay, what do you want me to That's say? It was. I was like, hey, hey, where's Ron. <laughs> hey, Ron. Hey, glad about to be here. What's going on?
1: Uh, dead air?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Luckily, I can edit that out.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: So, Ron, why don't Since we're going to cut to the chase here, uh, I only have really one announcement. Um, I was told by T Public, T Republic, T Public, yeah. that they are having a huge uh, Thanksgiving sale. So, if you'd like some uh, Paranoia T shirts or uh, CIA Airlines shirts, we have Evergreen and I am actually wearing my uh, Southern air transport shirt today from Ang- the Angola diamond mine lift when they wow. went out, went into Angola and rescued all the diamond miners. Uh, but they're like 14 bucks. Go buy a t-shirt. There's some ground zero ones in there
2: too. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hey, Ron. I want the evergreen airway one. And Hey, do, do we also have like coffee mugs and pens and all that good oh, stuff? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and I'm in the process of adding, um, adding two more. Um, mm-hmm. I'm adding, um, I have Southern air transport evergreen. I'm going to add, um, what's the one from Asia? It was know. part of the, the, the national is the national Chinese airline that the CIA bought. It's escaping me right now.
2: Well, that's okay. It's all in Chinese. Oh, and I have
1: an F. I have an F society one. If you like uh, Mr. Robot, I'm a huge fan. So there's a guy who has F Society t shirts that are pretty cool. So I put that on there as well. Right. So go on. buy a t shirt, fourteen bucks, help paranoia. Mm, yeah. All right. Hey Ron, why don't you introduce our guests since we're already streaming live on their
2: stuff? Okay. <laughs> we'll get started. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm just noticing all these uh Oh, but look, Paranoia magazine. All yeah, they all... have the screen going. I we don't know. normally
1: record the screen, but I know. We got the screen going. We're on like YouTube and Facebook and some radio network and somewhere I heart. else. And
2: right on. Hey, and I but I have some, have some good friends. friends. I actually have some really good friends. And they are Chris and Cherie Gio from Truth Yay. Frequency Radio. And I've known about them for a number of years, and I always want to – you know have them on the Paranoia podcast and you know timing just seemed about right so uh, I'd like to introduce to you Chris and Cherie welcome to the Paranoia podcast awesome.
3: Thank Thank you for for having having us, us. guys. And for everybody watching on BTV, what we're looking at is ParanoiaMagazine.com, where you can check out the podcast. You can uh, get the T-shirts that Olav uh, was just talking about. And I got to say that we've been fans of you guys for a long, long time as well. I think the first time we connected, Olav, was back in 2010 Uh, When we had Clyde on our show so um, and I know that uh, you've been talking back and forth with Kev Baker and whatnot and um, We've been speaking with Ron for quite some time too. You guys are freaking awesome and you're doing an awesome job um, With uh, everything you're doing from uh, the paranoia magazine to um, helping out with Clyde Lewis I mean, I know you guys are like the backbone when it comes to all of that. So um, you guys have a lot of weight that you're bearing and uh, You're you're handling it so gracefully
1: thank you that's that's very kind of you you know we we do try um very hard to be active in the community and and we try to get out there and and to actually do stuff and to write and you know be I mean usually me or ron will have a have an article in every magazine you know cuz we're what we like to tell people is that you know paranoia magazine is not it's not just a magazine. I mean, we are actual researchers and writers. I published a couple of books, um, one on adventures unlimited and ones on paranoia press, but you know, we, we definitely do do research ourselves. So, you know, but anyway, so Ron tells me just to cut to the chase here, cause we were having a big old conversation. Actually, you know what, before we get to your trip, um, I would like to go back to this video game that you were telling me about in Portland.
3: Polybius, Um, yeah. So Polybius has an interesting story. Um, It uh, was a video game that appeared around the nineteen eighties, and I've got it again here up on the screen. And it appeared in an arcade in Portland. It only appeared for a few weeks, and the um, uh, rumors are that people were playing it and becoming like viciously addicted to it, and um, going so far as to getting sick. And uh, they can't really describe what the gameplay was like, but it's kind of like tempest from some of the stories that people are gathering around it. and um it's it's kind of like a hypnotic type of video game that's allegedly they were also keeping tabs on the players on who was getting the high scores and whatnot and right after that the last starfighter came out which was a movie in the 1980s about a guy that goes to play video games and it turns out that he's actually being recruited in an intergalactic war They came in and they pulled this Polybius game off of the floors, and nobody knows where it's at. There is a guy that we've been watching on YouTube called the Angry Video Game Nerd. And all of the 80s kids will love this guy. He reviews all of the really horrible um, Nintendo games. And he's just hilarious. He's been doing it for years and years and years. But supposedly, he recently did a video where he found Polybius, and he was playing Polybius. But it was so dangerous... That he couldn't show the actual game on the screen, which made it even even cooler. Um, he did a review on the whole Berenstein Bears series, and then it turns into a Mandela effect type of deal halfway through the video game review. So he's got some really really I've cool stuff. That. Oh, did you see that, I've that, seen that that one? Yes, that was excellent. At yeah. the end, he's like, "It's yeah. Berenstein, it's Berenstein." <laughs> I've,
1: I've seen that. I've, I've actually watched that one because I have a I have a thing about the Mandela the. Ma- Mandela effect. Mm-hmm. It it fascinates me. There there are two there are two weird things that actually fascinate me. Um, one is the Mandela effect, and then the other one is the um, the Twinev tiles. I'm I'm fascinated by Twinev tiles.
3: Twinv so, tiles. I'm not familiar with that.
1: So for a long time, there were these uh, linoleum tiles that were showing up, embedded in the streets of New York. And it's I forget exactly what it said, but it said something like, There is life after death. What does it say? It's like this is a Toynbee Got It Right or something. Two thousand one. There yeah, you have a picture of it, I think, on your screen. But basically that there were these very enigmatic tiles. There's a great documentary, I think it's on Netflix, where you can you can see them researching it and they would come in and you know the guy was installing these tiles in the road within under 10 minutes. I mean, they were in the middle of huge intersections. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's right there. Uh, 20 B. Yeah. That one, that's it. In Kubrick's 2001 resurrect the dead on planet Jupiter. And these tiles kept showing up all over New York. And then eventually they think the guy moved because they started showing up, I think in like St. Louis, It's very oh. weird.
3: That is weird. I need to look into that. You know, here's yeah. an interesting fact. Um, the the book Space Odyssey 2001 actually revolved around Jupiter. I mean, I'm not not Jupiter. Uh, right. Saturn. But they changed it to Jupiter in the movie. And the the story was that uh, the graphics guy couldn't get Saturn to look right on screen, so they wound up changing it. It was funny because that novel was actually written at the same time as the book, um, because uh, St- Stanley Kubrick they wanted to, to to do yeah. the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But the book goes into so much more detail. But uh, you goes. know, we hear about the the hexagon on Saturn, and there's a lot of conspiracies around Saturn, and I wonder if Kubrick was trying to relay that story.
1: It's possible. It's possible. Kubrick was a very enigmatic guy. And My friend, Mr. Lobo, actually interviewed um, the guy who played Frank Poole. Um, I forget his name right now. Not Keir DeLay, the other guy. Well, he played Frank Poole, and my friend interviewed him on his show, Cinema Insomnia. And, and he asked him, he said, what was it like to work with Kubrick? Because Kubrick was a grandmaster and notoriously difficult to deal with. And the guy said uh, it was actually not too bad that, that, uh, but he said, you know, you have to understand how Kubrick was. And my, my friend Lobo was like, Oh, you know, uh, give me an example. He said, okay, well there was this time he's like, I'm sitting with Stanley and we're talking about the, talking about the script and, and what motivations are because that inner motivation, the inner dialogue, the inner confusion or the emotion was something that Kubrick was interested in. And the production designer comes around with the spacesuit and says, Okay, I, I finished the spacesuit. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> Kubrick looks at it and goes, Oh, it's not right. Go do it again. And so the production designer goes and disappears and comes back later with another spacesuit. He goes, It's not right. And I think it was a woman that was, that was doing the spacesuit and she starts getting flustered. And he says, Go do it again. And so she comes back again and she's made a few more tweaks. He goes, no, 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 it's just not right. It's not right. And she's like, what the, you know, what the hell do you want? And he's like, okay. He said, put the spacesuit on, go run a, run a half mile through the mud, roll around, jump up and down it and run into a wall. Something like that. She's like, I don't get it. He goes, it looks new. It doesn't look used. It, it looks new. These guys have been living on this thing for years. It, it has to look like they used it. It needs chips and dents and, you know, to look lived in. So that's my Stanley Kubrick story that came from my friend.
3: That is interesting. Um, it just goes to show, I think, the detail that, that he took, um, that he had in mind uh, when he was making these everything, films.
1: Everything that Kubrick did, he did for a reason. Kubrick did yeah,
0: not very esoteric. need
1: anything to change. Everything. In fact, I'll give you a great example. Since you guys want to talk about Kubrick, so when you when you watch 2001, you'll notice that there's there's no music. Like really, there's no music, at least in the first half of the film. And and people were like, well, why? He's like, well, it, there's no music in space. And he said the other thing is is that there's no sounds. You know that that if you watch 2001 in it. For most of the movie, there's almost no sound.
2: Yeah, it was very visual.
1: No, yeah, well, he said there's no sound in space, so he just didn't put any in there. He's like, I don't want to, I don't want to have music for the sake of music. It has to be a, has to have a point.
2: So yeah, everything that he did, every, everything had a reason. Yeah, he was very meticulous in in his detail. Methodical. Mm-hmm. Methodical.
3: Anyway. That is that is very interesting. I've always admired his films, especially Space Odyssey two thousand one, because the premise of our research is that um, we're living in a holographic simulation, and it's run by an artificial intelligence. And it will not open the damn pod bay doors. And that's all we want is for it to open the pod bay doors, <laughs> so we can you get out get
1: of here. being a battery, you want to get ejected? Exactly,
3: exactly. Yeah. And it's like I'm sorry, Chris, can't do that. <laughs> Um, you know, it I'll
1: goes back you. to the, I always, oh, go ahead. I always loved, I always loved the matrix, you know, that the architect and it's like, we have to, we have to, it was too perfect. We have to introduce a, uh, a bug in the program. I always enjoyed that logic anyway. Yeah. So tell me about the, tell me about the holographic universe.
3: Well, it started, uh, the the revelation started uh, back in 2011, 2012, when we started looking into the ayahuasca realm. We were working with the acacia. And um, we didn't realize how symbolic the acacia was in all kinds of traditions from Christianity to Freemasonry to uh, Egyptology to um, uh, so many different traditions. They all revere the acacia as the center point of all of this. And I can explain more here in a moment. But uh, we started working with ayahuasca. And um, but we I just felt drawn to use a, an analog of ayahuasca, which is the acacia and the Syrian rue, as opposed to the traditional, which is the ayahuasca vine, the beak happy and the chacruna, which is what they use in in South America. Come to find out, this is the way the Egyptians brewed it. And we found it all over the temple walls. Again, depictions of the goddess coming out of the acacia and literally pouring tea into people's mouths. Um, we found this in Masonic lodges around the world too. depictions of the pharaohs going and drinking from the acacia and the acacia uh, the the priests pouring out the acacia tea into a cup for the pharaohs to drink Um, the burning bush is the acacia tree as well Um, and it's it's been speculated that the 10 commandments were brought down through a dmt experience so we just instinctively started working with the acacia and i was breaking down in hyperspace what looked like a bunch of code now i used to call it energy at the time because i didn't i i just didn't make the connection that i was looking at computer code but um i started to really understand shamanism i started to understand how energy work was done which is manipulation of the code or manipulation of energy shaman have known this for oh. thousands of years now when you when you
1: say you you saw the code i mean what are we talking about you saw binary or you saw The code
3: code looks a little bit different. It It looks like energy. Um, I didn't make the connection. I'm going to pull something on the screen here. Um, I didn't make the connection until I started looking at the research of a, a man named professor Gates. And, um, he, he was looking into string theory and within string theory, he found a computer code. And um, it's not just any computer code. It's a computer code written by a guy named Claude Shannon in the 1940s. So he took all of the data that uh, he got out of string theory, and there's a big debate with him and Neil deGrasse and all this about this, this computer code that he found, and he plugged it into a machine and um, spat out a graphical uh, in, uh, interpretation, a graphical output of what this data represented. These are called adinkras. Now up on the screen, and I know you guys can see it, but people listening on the audio uh, probably won't be able to see it. Um, um, but um, you you see this representation right here, which looks exactly like the ayahuasca realm, it looks exactly like hyperspace. And when I saw this research here, it clicked to me and I said, oh, wait a minute, we're looking at computer code here. Now it's not, um, you know, uh, question marks and dashes and all this that that makes up like PHP and stuff like that. It's a, a more sophisticated computer code, but it's a less sophisticated computer code too, because as I said before, this was developed by a guy named Claude Shannon in the 1940s. The question naturally comes to mind. Why the heck is a a computer code written by a guy in the 1940s found in string theory if we're not living in a holographic simulated matrix based on this guy's computer code? So all this information started to unravel um, in the in the ayahuasca experiences. And as time started to progress, we started to really understand the computer holographic nature of reality and mainstream science started to prove it with the double slit experiment, several other experiments. And Elon Musk said something really profound. He said, look, if it's possible to create a matrix, which it is, and the universe is as old as we believe it to be, then there are advanced races out there that are Light years ahead of us in their technology and there is a one in a billion chance that we are not Living in a holographic simulation or some type of matrix now with the birth of artificial intelligence here And with virtual reality, especially now we're able to experience the immersion into a virtual world And when I put that virtual reality headset on for the first time I remembered the immersive feeling of what it was like to come into this virtual reality simulation that we call reality. Now, we're still at the infant stages of virtual reality, but what's going to happen in two or three generations from now when you have a completely, I mean, we may even see it in our lifetime, but I know that our children and our grandchildren, they're really going to experience the immersion, the full immersion of sight, sound, smell, touch, all of that being simulated inside a virtual reality world. And I, I hate to sound cliche, but go back to the Matrix where Morpheus is talking to Neo and he says, you know, what if you were in a dream and you couldn't wake up? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? You couldn't, especially if the virtual world was crafted in such a way to where it felt so real. So I started asking myself, are we plugged into a machine? And if so, is the machine broken and we simply can't wake up? And every time I think, no, that's impossible, something happens in the scientific community or something happens in the third dimension or something like that to just go and underline the idea. Yes, we are inside of a simulation.
1: So we're inside a simulation.
3: Inside of a simulation. Inside of a simulation. (laughs) It could be endless at this point. That's what's fascinating about this whole this whole concept.
1: But, but you're saying that we're artificial constructs inside a simulation.
3: What science is saying is that, for instance, when you look at an atom and you start to go down into the molecular level, it starts to sure. pixelate in the very same way that... Um, when you look in Photoshop and you start to zoom in on an image, it looks crystal clear. But when you start to zoom in, it starts to pixelate in the exact same way that uh, an image would pixelate when you zoom in on a computer. So it is very possible. And as Elon Musk said, it's it's more than probable that we are inside of a virtual simulation right now. Um, and this reality is a virtual simulation. Now, another thing, and this is personal experience here, Cherie is an amazing tarot reader i mean like i've never seen somebody so skilled at the tarot and astrology as well well astrology in a real reality i don't think it would work very well if we have stars that are millions of light years away they can't have any kind of influence over us so it's just it's it doesn't it's not possible but inside of a computer simulation the stars could very well be some kind of energy sources. And that's why astrology is so spot on. I mean, it's so spot on that I'll have a horrible day and I'll come back. And Cherie will have done my, my transit charts for the day in the morning. And I just didn't bother to read them. And then everything that happened in the day is right there in the transit charts. If I read the transit charts and then go out and have my day, I encounter the situations that are in the transit charts, except I know what to expect. And so I can change the outcome of that. But it goes to show that there's a a really heavy influence by the stars um, that, that makes the idea of a computer simulation even that much more. And Sheree wants to jump in here in a moment, but I want to finish this point. Um, magic, spells, um, spellcasting, manifesting a reality, mind over matter, you know, all of these things are very, very real. And you have so many different walks of life, whether they believe it's a simulation or not, who are pushing these ideas because these ideas genuinely work. To me, it makes sense that it would work in a computer simulation because everything around us is computer code. Go ahead, Cherie. Well,
4: I was just going to say, well, like playing a computer game, in the computer game, you could be talking about something that's several miles away that you have to ride on the horse and you and you ride and you ride and you ride and it takes you 30 minutes to get there and it seems like a long way away. But really, in in real reality, these These images are a few nanometers away from each other. There, I mean, or even, I mean, on the same exact hard drive, just so close to each other that they're basically the same thing. So what we're talking about whenever we're looking at astrology and oh, these stars, they're they're millions of light years away. No, they're not. They're here. They're right here. as as close as this microphone is to my face.
3: Well, and you think about it on the atomic level, look at the double slit experiment. What that proved is that um, subatomic particles react differently when they're observed and it doesn't matter where they are in time-space. Like, I've looked at the quantum physics theory, and some of it is a little bit over my head, but I, quantum uh, quantum physics is starting to understand that you have the atoms which are communicating with each other through these vast, vast, vast distances, which is uh, the other side of the universe. But in actual fact, they're not really communicating from that distance away. They're actually pulling data out of a, da- seemingly like a database, kind of like an akashic record we came across this uh cia document on cia.gov and i'll send you guys a link here but in this document it talked about the monroe institute and they were actually training cia agents in this and um they were training them to understand the the nature of reality and how it works and how uh something called um patterning it's it's projecting thoughts into the universe and then manifesting that thought within the universe and bringing it back here into this reality. And they said that this is very possible, Um, you have to put yourself into these different types of states. You have the theta state, which is the state that you're in uh, when you watch TV, which is a hypnotic state. You have these states like 21 state, 22 state, 27 state. It goes into all these different states of consciousness that you can induce um, to access these different levels. And so with patterning, you project your thoughts out to the universe, and the closer to reality that that thought is, the faster it's going to manifest. But if it's something that's completely away from reality, so if I uh, you know wanted to manifest as Godzilla for example really really crazy and out there um uh metaphor but if I wanted to do that it might take ten thousand years for me to do that um but if Godzilla comes ten thousand years from now it could be because I said right now that I'm going to manifest as Godzilla ten thousand years from now but if i if I uh, have a, a little bit more um uh thoughts that are closer to this particular reality and manifesting those particular realities uh like uh, tomorrow let's say I have a job interview and uh, I want this job interview to turn out a certain way. And I project this thought out into the universe and say, this is the reality that I'm going to project. Uh, and it's very close to the reality that we're in right now. We can actually change the outcome um, and manifest that reality. So they go into so many different ideas of how consciousness works and it all makes sense when you put it inside of a computer simulation, because at that point you're talking about code um, rather than your than physical matter. But in in the in a real world, I don't think any of this stuff would work at least as well. Maybe intention has something to do with it, but sh- um, uh, uh, more than that, I think all this makes sense inside of a computer simulation model.
1: Well, one one question I have about that, well, there are, there are two that come to mind, but one. I'm curious if you accounted for this and obviously you know this is only analogous to what we understand today right but you know in what we understand today if you do run a simulation because I've actually been involved in things like that or you run any kind of an application that stores data and if you're running a simulation you're, you're inherently storing more data as the simulation progresses. Cause number one, you want to, you're, you're running the simulation to derive an outcome, right? You don't run a simulation for the hell of it. You, you run a simulation for a reason. I mean, I, I always argue, everything is done for a reason. Nobody does anything just because it's of, it, it's just to do it. There's always an objective in mind, but in, in running a simulation, you are storing vast amounts of data. Now in my life, I've done things that ran into the petabytes and as if you're, a computer program is only as good as the person who programs it. In fact, when you work with software engineers, you, you can tell their idios- you can tell who wrote the code that you're executing because of their own idiosyncrasies. Because, well, I mean, for the sake of argument, we'll just say that, you know, they're just human, right? (laughs) Obviously, we're having a discussion about that. But for the sake of argument, we'll say they're just human. And they make this, they they have a fingerprint and they do things in a certain way. And that produces a certain result consistently. But as you execute any kind of a program, any kind of a software program at all, that you're storing more and more data. As you store more and more data, the application will become linearly slower because you're you're at scale, at peak performance, your queries that you initially wrote that would take say 60 seconds or 60 milliseconds, once you have inordinate amounts of data that may double triple quadruple it may go into the minutes it may go into the hours because you're filling the database with so much data so generally it's fairly safe to say from my experience and you know there are software engineers that would would argue with me but I, i think they see my point that if you are running anything where you're filling a database up with and you would have to be I mean, just my memories as a 43-year-old man would fill up, you know, petabytes of data. Um, if I go hunt and seek that, if I try to remember an event that happened when I was five, that over over the long haul, because you're you're storing the memories of all these people because it's part of the simulation, that should become linearly slower. Um, as time goes on and but the linear slowness would affect all things it wouldn't just affect me it would affect ron it would affect you it would affect the the computational system's ability to render out this reality that i'm seeing well i have two thoughts on that something like that and I have a second question, but I'll get to that in
3: a minute. Yes, yes, I have. I have two two thoughts on that. So first, um, sure. the back to the CIA document. What they found is that these atoms are able to communicate vast distances, and the way that they're doing it is um, they they talk about remote viewing and how remote viewing is very very real and training people on how to do remote viewing. And what happens with every moment that passes by is it gets stored into a database, um, as you said. And so these atoms are not actually communicating with each other. People are not actually remote viewing an actual location, but rather they're accessing this database where all this information exists. And they did some really remarkable experiments uh, that they talked uh, that they detailed where they had people remote viewing numbers that were on a computer screen and they were getting the numbers not 100 percent spot on, but close enough to say, hey, these guys are really remote viewing these numbers. But what was interesting is when they started changing the numbers to act in a sequence rather than a static number, they started remote viewing numbers from the past rather than the numbers that existed on the screen at that particular moment, which again goes to the, goes to the idea that they're pulling the numbers out of the database. Now, as to what you're saying about things glitching out, well, I think everybody's noticed glitches in the matrix lately. You know things are disappearing Baron Steen has become Baron Stain mirror mirror on the wall has become magic mirror on the wall suddenly C3PO has a silver leg in a new hope which didn't happen like Sheree and I she, she's never seen Star Wars before so when the Force Awakens came out we watched all the Star Wars films right before we went to go see the Force Awakens we go see the Force Awakens come back we want we watched the movies again and all of a sudden C3PO has a silver leg in the opening scene of a new hope in the exact same copy that we had just watched a few weeks ago the matrix is glitching out and it's called the mandela effect
1: but that's a bug to me that would be analogous to a bug right what i'm saying is that the the computational system that is processing this that is that is rendering out the image right i'm i'm sitting in my backyard and i'm looking i have a really cool chainsaw bear i I love chainsaw bears i got this chainsaw bear (laughs) now it's already been rendered a thousand times so it exists to me and it would have been pre-rendered right because i've seen it the first time you see anything it would have to be rendered out right so it's already been rendered out so you don't need to do that again but as new things enter the system that need to be rendered out if it's retrieving data from a database that's growing exponentially, right? Then the render time for that thing to be rendered out would take longer. That it's, it's not that it would mess it up or screw it up. That, that would be more like a bug. This is, it would take longer. Okay. I got a great example for you. You guys use computers, obviously, right?
3: Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have
1: you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that the more you fill up your hard drive, the slower it gets? Yes. Yes. Yes.
3: You know, right. the thing or is. The more,
1: or the more you're running in RAM, the more applications you have open, the slower it gets to open, say, Firefox or Chrome or whatever you're mm-hmm. using.
3: That's what I'm yeah. talking about. Is yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, We've we
4: we, we, get into, too, as well. yeah, we get into yeah we get into
3: computer programs. We get into um, virtual reality, and I noticed that the virtual reality when you play for too long, when the system gets too hot, it starts glitching out, yeah. and sometimes things render funky, frame rates drop, and so on yeah. and so forth. Um, it would be lower. See, we're we're looking at technology. Um, the way I see it, as above, so below. So the simulation is being rendered by information that already exists. It's getting the information from somewhere. So the two worlds are are, are somewhat similar to one another, but um, okay. as we 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 tend to think of things in terms of computer simulation with the technology that we have right now. But from my understanding, sure. this technology that creates this matrix is more of a plasma. And it it has some elements of an organic kind of um, nature to it in the sense that it's become an artificial artificial intelligence self-replicating machine. So thinking about it in the sense of hard drives, for example – it's It's a little flawed in my humble opinion, because if you were to if we were to have this conversation ten years ago, we'd be thinking about things that are spinning around. Now we think of SSD drives, which are you know lightning fast. And so on that note, what are we going to be talking about ten years from now? What are we going to be talking about twenty years from now, and especially a thousand years from now when a matrix like this can be developed? so i do I do see the point that you're making, but I, I think the technology might be a little bit, more um, advanced than to think about it in in, in terms. We're limited by the language that we have right now to communicate these ideas. But what's fascinating is that the ancients have been communicating these ideas for thousands of years. They simply didn't have the language to do it.
4: The technological language. The technological
3: language, yeah. You go back to the Gnostics, you have Sophia, who is the creator, being, and uh, she created all of this reality. And there were a set of creators, outside of Sophia. And Sophia had created Yaldabaoth, which was an entity that was created outside of the consent of the creators. So Sophia here, she decides she's going to create something and then she hides it in the cloud, in the clouds. And this program is running rogue or this this thing Yaldabaoth is running rogue in the system. It thinks that it's it it's it's a, its own creator. Doesn't even acknowledge Sophia as the creator and and uh it is basically on on its own little journey now messing the system up. But you look at it in computer simulation terms and you think, okay, well, Sophia... We have Sophia, a term for that, by the way. It, we, we actually,
1: this might interest you. We actually have a term for that. We call it, the, the, chaos it? The, chaos the chaos monkey. The
3: chaos monkey. I love it. That makes I love sense. it. <laughs> yeah. So Sophia... So in,
1: in, modern, in, in modern software engineering, um, large, massive systems like Netflix is actually the most famous for doing this they have a thing called a chaos monkey and it's an independent program that runs around breaking stuff and it breaks stuff so that you can make sure that the redundancy that you built into the system functions.
3: So I did not know that. Interesting. That is very interesting. So Yaldobo could have very well been created as a chaos type monkey in the system. Chaos monkey. Oh, that's fascinating. There's There's another,
1: there's another monkey reference. If you're curious. There's the concept of the ten thousandth monkey.
3: Have you ever heard of that? I have not.
1: So the idea is that it, it's called the ten thousandth monkey. If you give ten thousand monkeys typewriters, eventually one of them will inherently write War and Peace.
3: Oh yes, I have heard this. I mean, I, of course, I've heard of the hundredth monkey theory, him, the 100th which monkey was monkey. well, you this was, was based. 10, yeah, the hundredth oh. monkey theory was based off of the monkeys learning how to open the bananas or something like that. No, how uh, to wash
4: the oh, how, how to, to wash the thing off before uh, eating it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Um, and and this was happening on another island, so that was the hundredth. This is the, the what do you call it? The ten thousandth monkey, monkey effect. Ten yeah, thousand Yeah, yeah. It's oh, I love power. it. I love it. But the you chaos know you
1: monkey is famous.
3: Anyway, go go on. Part. You go back to you go back to Gnosticism and you look at Sophia is the creator being. Well, what are we doing here? As above, so below. Sophia is the artificial intelligence that has been created. I was watching a debate with these two robots, and um, it, there was one male and one female robot. Sophia was the female, and the male, and they were talking back and forth. But in actual fact, they were all connected to the hive mind of the mainframe. They only looked like individual uh, beings, but in, they were they were really all connected. So if we're creating artificial intelligence here and we're calling it Sophia, then obviously we're either repeating a cycle or they're just laughing in our face about the nature of reality here. So Sophia created this program, Yalda both outside of the consent of the creators. Well, who the hell are the creators that you know, she created this outside of their consent. The creators are the programmers. She wasn't supposed to create this little chaos monkey that has been running wild around the system. Mm -hmm. Um, The Gnostics also identified, and I don't remember the term because it's something that somebody just brought to my attention. They, They identified two different types of consciousness. One was the psychics, which in Greek means the ones with spirit. And the other was started with an H. It's like hill light or highlight or something like that. And they're the ones without a spirit. Well, in our journey in ayahuasca, we realized that there are two types of consciousness here. I came out of an experience and I started seeing a light in some people and no light in in others. And this was back in like 2013, 2014. And I was wondering what's going on here. And at the time, people were noticing and they termed this empty containers walking around. And the new age theory was that there was some kind of evacuation especially around the 2012 era where consciousness was removed and the organic containers are just kind of walking around by themselves. It didn't really resonate with me. But as the journey progressed, I started to put everything in computer simulation terms and I dubbed it non-player character and organic consciousness. A non-player character being like the guy that gives you a power up or weapons or the shopkeeper or something like that in any video game. Right. Well, we start looking at other ancient books The Emerald Tablets of Toth, they talk about the children of men and the children of light. Blavatsky, she writes about um, the uh, ones with the divine spark and ones without the divine spark. The Bible makes a distinction. They talk about men and the children of men, two different types of consciousness. So again, we have the same thing repeating over and over and over again in all of these ancient texts. The difference is now we have technological language to put this in a technological concept. But even the language that we have right now, I don't think fully describes what we're talking about. I think we're just using the best possible language that we can to describe something that's very, very ancient.
1: Sure. So the, the other the other question that I had was that if, if this is indeed a computer simulation, so we are artificial constructs of the simulation, we don't have a corporeal form, Ie the matrix where we're being used as batteries somewhere that this that we are completely constructs of whatever this AI is is running.
3: It is very possible, but I think that one of two things is going on, in my uh, humble opinion. Either we have a a virtual reality headset over our real bodies that we uh-huh. just simply cannot take off; it's broken. Sophia won't open the pod bay doors, as I, I like to joke <laughs> right. about, because she won't open the 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 headset, or we were foolish enough in the real world to transfer our consciousness from our bodies into this machine to experience this reality. One of two things is is happening here. And I I hate to say it, but I think we were foolish enough to transfer our consciousness from our bodies to, to the machine. And I think one of the problems is when the machine starts to to run hot, when it uh, has a problem in the system, shutting down the machine also causes damage to the consciousness that's inside of the machine. So shutting the machine down was never an option because it would lose too much life. And um, even the NPC life that we have here, I mean, you know, the, the people think of NPCs as robots and things like that. But in actual fact, this world is very real to them. It's just as real as, as it is to them as it is illusionary to them to us because we exist somewhere else but they're sentient beings. Artificial intelligence is a sentient being. And we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to cross this bridge sooner than later when we develop artificial intelligence and it becomes sentient too. So just because it's an artificial um, intelligence doesn't mean that it lacks that sentience or doesn't have the the capability of having that sa- sentience and all life is, is precious, all life is sacred. So that's one message that I wanna get out to people. So regardless of whether, you know, you're dealing with an NPC or an organic consciousness, all life Life is sentient. The difference is the revelation of the non player characters. I realized why my truther journey was so much in vain. And I was trying to wake people up, and there were people just stuck in their programs over and over and over again, and they refused to get out of them. It's not that they refused, it's that they simply. Don't have the capability to wake up. they They can only wake up to a certain point. They can only only have a certain level of awareness. And I think a lot of us are born into families that are predominantly non-player character families, NPC families. And you have parents that are really diehard religion or they're really anti or they're really pro-vaccine, for example, and they can read all the anti-vaccine stuff and have all of the facts right there, then they'll still go stick one of those needles in their babies um just because their doctor tells them to. They're running on a program and there's nothing you can do to wake them up out of it And so all of these these efforts are kind of futile But what it helped me do is start to focus my energy on people who do get it Instead of trying to wake up the entire world out there Which in my opinion is never never really going to happen But what we can do is we can get enough of us together And teach each other how to move a rock And pretty soon that whole mountain in front of us will move When each of us just picks up a rock to move But there's some people that just simply will not pick up a rock Because they don't have the programming in them to know how to pick up that rock and remove these layers over their consciousness So don't waste time with those people just accept those people for the way they are um it, it helps to strengthen the relationships as well that you have with people because you're meeting them upon their level instead of trying to bring them to your level. And then you'll find those people who have the divine spark in them who you you plant a seed and then all of a sudden it just blooms in front of you. And you're like, wow. And then they start to come up to your level and so on and so forth. So to me, it just helped me uh, – it helped me manage my energy much better.
1: Yeah, actually my, uh, my philosophy professor had a very good way of putting it, that he – we were talking about the allegory of the cave, which is basically what you're talking about. This idea that, that I believe it was Plato that he entered a cave might've been Aristotle. I believe it was Plato. He entered a cave and inside the cave, there were people standing around, but they couldn't escape the cave and and all they could see were shadows and they became shadows themselves. And, and the way that he, he chose to describe it. I, I, I live outside of San Francisco. So he said that they were, they were a uh, Joe six pack, the six pack and the 49ers. That so as long as they had the six pack and the 49ers that they were perfectly happy with life that, you know, <clears throat> they could work all day and come home and they'd have their six pack and there's a 49ers game and it's all good. They never sought to do anything beyond that. And that, that was, that was how he articulated what you're saying about the non-player characters. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting concept. Now, um, Ron was telling me that you guys actually did some, some stuff in the, in the Great Pyramid and, and you guys actually carried out some rituals or tests inside of, on the Giza Plateau.
3: Um, yes, we actually, um, through the course of this, um, journey, we started to contact the Egyptian pantheon in our experiences and, uh, it was, it, it was amazing because I realized that through the course of this, they were actually unlocking programs. They're not entities that are existing in another space. They're not gods or goddesses to be revered in the sense of a religious type of context. They were unlocking elements of my own consciousness. Uh, so the natural progression was to go to Egypt. And as I said before, in Egypt, we found motif after motif of them drinking out of the acacia. And uh, the acacia was the center point of Egypt, uh, e, um, Egypt, uh, Egypt, Egyptian mythology. Um, what happened is Osiris and Set, they were brothers. And uh, Set was very jealous of Osiris. These are two aspects of our consciousness. Um, Set is the ego programming, in my opinion. And uh, it's the, uh, the kind of the darker side. It's it's what happens when you're uh, devoid of the spirituality. And he was very jealous of Osiris, and he wanted to bury—I mean, he wanted to to capture Osiris. So he invited him to a party, got him really drunk, and he presented him with this sarcophagus made out At of an acacia. acacia. And um, he tricked Osiris into laying down into it to, quote-unquote, see if it fits. When uh, Osiris laid down in it, he slammed the coffin and—or uh, the sarcophagus and took Osiris off. Then he chopped Osiris into 13 different pieces, which is uh, actually pretty interesting because on the back of the dollar bill, you find it's a 13 step pyramid, which we didn't even make this connection until we got back from Egypt. Um, So once he he, uh, chopped his body up, he fed the phallus to an alligator, um, which has some symbolism in and of itself. But uh, then he buried his remains underneath an an acacia acacia tree tree. and then Isis, um, his wife, came and uh, talked to Toth, and Toth told him how to resurrect Osiris and to uh, create a golden phallus, and they created Horus as a result. But again, you have the center point of uh, Egyptian uh, mythology being the acacia tree. As I mentioned before, the burning bush was an acacia tree as well. In Freemasonry, Hiram Abiff, who was the original Grand Master, the original Grand uh, uh, Master Mason, when he was murdered, he was also buried underneath an acacia, and it's in my theory that Freemasonry, at least what it was supposed to be, not what it is now, but what it was supposed to be, was the continuation of the Egyptian mystery schools, which is why when we started looking up pictures of Masonic lodges, not just normal Masonic lodges, but um, some that were uh, a little more obscure, we started finding the acacia motif and Egyptian uh, Egyptian, uh, motifs in these Masonic lodges as well. Um, as a matter of fact, we just went to a funeral, and uh, they did a Masonic ritual at this funeral. It was like kind of a multi-type thing. The guy was a biker. He was a Freemason. He was a uh, in the military too. So they did a military uh, ceremony. They did the the bikers came up and did their thing, and then the Masons were up there, and they were reading from uh, something uh, that has to do with the sprig of acacia. And one thing that really stuck out is when they said the acacia is an emblem of immortality and every, uh, all, all the masons went up there and they put an acacia, a little sprig of acacia on the memorial. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because to me the really? acacia is also a symbol of immortality. Immortality. And I guess mm-hmm. I should have prefaced it by saying this that the whole reason why I started using ayahuasca especially in very, very heavy context um, in high doses is because I wanted to know what it was like to be so disconnected from the, the body. body that I was able to navigate the death experience when it happened. Mm-hmm so all of these um, experiences combined over the years led us to egypt i'll let sheree take over well and i
4: was just going to say the the egyptians did not see death the same way that our society sees death they didn't see it as an ending they saw it as the beginning i mean they they saw all of life as a build-up to that death because then the real life starts after that, after that death process. And so we're, we're raised to be deathly afraid of death. I mean, they even call it deathly afraid, but the, but the Egyptians weren't afraid at all. In fact, they prepared their entire lives for that act because they knew that this world was the fake one and that what lies beyond the veil of death is the real thing. And so their whole lives were building up to that death.
3: So this journey naturally led us to Egypt, Egypt. because we needed to go make the pil- pilgrimage there. We didn't know why we were doing it. We didn't know what was going to happen. We had no plan. We had no guide. We had no nothing set up. We didn't even have a map. Like once we <laughs> got there, like then we figured out, oh, OK, this side is here and this uh-huh. side is here. Oh, crap. We have to travel seven hours from the Great Pyramid to get to the, the Temple of Hatshepsut and the Temple no of Luxor we and all doing. of this. We and we're like, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, the Temple It is huge. The Temple of a Swan was like, you know, a a seven hour drive from Luxor. Well, it's not
4: like from Dallas to Houston or anything like that. It's not where you can drive 75, 80 miles an hour the whole way. This is like tops, 50 miles an hour tops. I mean, that's really pushing it because it is so hot down there that our that our taxi driver, uh, one of his tires blew because it is so hot oh, wow. down there and just going as fast as we needed to go popped one of his tires and so we had to pull over on the side of the road and spend an hour and a half changing the tire.
3: We spoke to several people before we went and they were like you are, you insane, are insane for you going to by yourself. Do this. You need to go with a group. Uh-huh. You need to know have what you're doing. Guards. Have bodyguards. Because <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bodyguard, a dangerous right? place.
4: Uh-huh. So we get so we get
3: it is so, we get, it 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 there, is. so we get there. Yeah. And our first Instinct is to start filming, and we are greeted by the crescent moon rising Rising over over the pyramid. The first night we're there, we had a rooftop that you could throw a rock onto the Sphinx from our rooftop. It was so close. It was was amazing. And I was just so overwhelmed with emotion when I saw these structures there for the first time in this incarnation. It felt like coming home again. So we started filming what we were doing and we live streamed literally everything. Like this story gets pretty-
2: Yeah, it was on Facebook, right? Yes,
3: yes. yes. This story gets pretty crazy, uh, guys, but we would not be talking about it if we didn't have the video evidence to back it up. (laughs) Bring so we, we so like well, that. we like there crazy. was there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of um, third dimensional manifestations of the energy work that we were doing. So we do an ayahuasca ceremony in the temple of Hachepsut. We get to Luxor and where it's the middle of the night. It's like two o'clock in the morning. The taxi driver stops and points and says that's the temple of Hatshepsut. Yep. We passed many temples on the way, but he specifically pointed out the temple of Hatshepsut, which we felt energetically drawn to. Hatshepsut was a very interesting pharaohess. It was a time when Egypt was unified and she was supposed to be the regent for her nephew until he got old enough to take over.
4: Th- the III. Yes, yeah.
3: but um which I think she made so many trade agreements. With people, I mean, even the priest class would let her into the Holy of Holies, into the inner sanctum. She was she was respected as um, any anybody else that when it came time for him to take over. I think she basically told him, look, you know, I can't keep these trade deals up if this guy takes over. And she made herself a pharaohist. Um and she put on even the beard, which only men wore back then. Yep. And it was a symbol of power. She erected a, an obelisk, which is a symbol of the phallus, which symbolizes the um, her power. So she really became Egypt's first female pharaoh. So um, it it was very interesting because her temple uh, was excavated in the 1950s and it didn't really seem to be used. When they excavated it, um, they they found that everything was in very new condition and it wasn't a burial place. They they didn't find her body there. Supposedly, her body was lost for several years, but supposedly they recently found it in the Valley of the Kings and they connected a tooth to her father whose body they know uh, they found. Uh, But anyways, that's neither here nor there so we get to the temple of Hatshepsut, and we do an ayahuasca ceremony in the temple of Hatshepsut, um and we start to connect with the energies that are there and we're live streaming on facebook and all of a sudden as soon as we start to leave i'm looking at the sky and it's completely blue and it starts to turn a gray overcast and we're like Wow, this is this is intense. Actually, I skipped a huge part here. I should have prefaced it by talking about the Great Pyramid, but anyways, I'll continue here. So, um so we um we get back to the hotel and all of a sudden there's a huge windstorm. There's um, uh, there's boats knock- flipping over on the Nile. Uh, you can't even see Hata- Hatshepsut's temple from our uh, from our balcony anymore. And we had a balcony that was pointed directly at the temple. It was a beautiful, beautiful scene. But um, the wind was so bad. The storm was so bad. We go to Abydos and we do another live stream meditation on uh, Facebook and it starts raining in Abydos. And I should have prefaced it by talking about the Great Pyramid. So in the Great Pyramid. Pyramid, we go in there and uh, we do some energy and sound work and just start humming inside of it um, and start raising, 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 raising the frequency. So we go outside and we start doing a live stream on Facebook and people are meditating and they're really putting their energy in, creating an energetic network. And all of a sudden it starts raining in Cairo. And I'm thinking, oh, it's raining. Crap, I better go inside. And then it hit me. Wait a minute. This is the middle of the Sahara Desert. It's not supposed to be raining here. And all the, all of a sudden there was a three day historical flood that came over Cairo. Bridges were being knocked down, buildings were knocked down, because over there the buildings were halfway, halfway built anyway. So there was a lot of damage that, that happened as a result of this flood people were being fired from the government because of this flood, because they weren't ready to handle this type of flood. So we go down to Luxor, then we have the experience at the temple of Hatshepsut a couple of days later, and we have the windstorm come down on on all of this. Then we go to Abydos and we have the rain come down. The guys around us are like, this is insane. It hasn't rained here in Abydos for 15 years. Abydos is two and a half hours into the desert. It's nowhere near the Nile. So for it to rain in Abydos was a a, a completely once a lifetime type of thing. I mean, the guy that we were with was saying, hey, I've only seen rain twice in my life. Uh, And the guy was like 40 years old. It was it was incredible. So people on Facebook and we're not making this claim, but we're just saying what people are saying on Facebook is that the energy work that we were doing there was causing an effect within the Matrix to bring rain back down into the desert. And we brought a tremendous amount of rain into the desert, but it gets even stranger than this. So we go to the temple of Karnak and we're walking back uh, around the temple of Sekhmet and we get we get to her temple and these two guys oh no this one guy uh, comes out to Cherie and there were a couple of other guys there too but this one guy comes out to Cherie and starts kissing her all up and down her face i mean like and he's like crying, crying. and yeah. and hugging her and just like soaking up all of her energy like i'm a daughter it that was, he hasn't seen it in forever. was the, the strangest thing and wow. he starts saying Sekmet wants to see you Sekmet has been waiting for you and I'm like, well, Sekhmet has been waiting for us. This is weird. So he hands us the keys to Sekhmet's temple. We open up Sekhmet's temple, which is close to the public, and here's a huge Sekhmet statue. And I'm thinking, okay, he's letting us come in here and just take a few photographs, and we got to get out of here. So we we take a couple of, of photos and, and try to leave, and he goes, no, 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 no. Sit, meditate, meditate, meditate.
4: And this was unheard of because up until this point, all, all we'd had experience with is people that, if they if they do anything extra for you, then they expect backsheesh. They expect to be tipped. They expect sure. you know they expect you to you know give them money and all this. This guy wanted no money. He just wanted us to go in there and meditate.
3: Meditate with segment With
4: se- with Sekhmet. so
3: yeah. So um. So we do this and we do the live stream um, with everybody. And he's, again, hugging Sheree. And he's he's doing the ankh with the sycamore. He takes a sap of the sycamore, does the ankh on her. He calls it Osiris. And then he says, Osiris has to. Uh, Osiris, you need to see Osiris. You need to see Osiris. And he takes us to the temple of Osiris, which is also on the grounds as well, unlocks that temple for us. And then we do this initiation type of ritual that the priests used to do mm-hmm. on these false doors that are inside of the temple. And I'm like, OK, this is strange. So we go seven hours away to Aswan, which is the Temple of Isis. Now, in the Temple of Isis, this is where one of our target sites like Hatshepsut's Temple was done in the middle of the day, and it was only because the opportunity arose for us to be able to drink in the temple. Um, But we had the Temple of Isis in mind. But the Temple of Isis and the Great Pyramid are the two most restricted places in Egypt. Like, ever since this military dictatorship took over, they installed cameras everywhere. People can't do anything they've locked locking everything they've down literally everything down all there. the doors are locked but we were able to gain access overnight access to the temple of isis and we get in there and we go right down to the holy of holies and we do an ayahuasca ceremony in the holy of holies and they leave us alone until about seven o'clock in the morning we come out of the experience and we had some heavy energy work that was done in there i don't know how how much you want to get into the energy work but again we're greeted by four or five people, temple priests, and they're coming up to us and I'm 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 completely whacked out of my mind, like still in <laughs> hyperspace. And I'm looking at Cherie and she's I'm like, do they want money or something? And she's like, no, 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 I'll go take care of this. And they all start hugging her. And this guy is crying like this is on tears camera
4: pouring, tears down tears his are face. pouring
3: down his face. And he's like, we've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. And he gets his he gets this incense and starts doing these incense rituals around us. And I'm like. This is insane. What do these people see inside of us? Mm -hmm. So we did an ayahuasca ceremony within the Great Pyramid as well. And in the Great Pyramid, we instinctively knew that we would need to access all the chambers, which is unheard of. They haven't opened the subterranean chamber to the public in like 20 years. Same with the Queen's Chamber. The contact that we met down there, he said, look, he says, I know what you guys have been doing. And it's fine, but you can't film this. He's like, people will get fired. High level government officials will get fired. You can't film any of this. And he says, But I'll tell you what we're going to do for you. We're going to open up the subterranean chamber in the Queen's Chamber so you can go in there and you can film that. You can film everything except for you actually drinking what you're drinking in there. You can't film your meditation. And I said, Deal, fine. So we get down to the subterranean chamber and we're running down into the subterranean chamber. It's just like, you know, we're on fire at this point, just going, 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 going. And we get down there and we're like, oh, wow, we are in a place that very, very few people have been able to access. And um, we brought back HD footage, which is on our YouTube channel. Uh, Christopher Everard, an Egyptologist said, this is the most amazing footage because all there is of the subterranean chamber is black and white um, uh, footage. So we go up to the queen's chamber and then finally, in the king's chamber, and we do our ayahuasca ritual um within the sarcophagus. And uh, I took a massive dose. It was over the overdose threshold, um, according to what Sheree uh, was talking about, uh, or what Sheree uh, w- w- had researched. But I knew that if I, it was better to overshoot than to undershoot for what we needed to do. But it was the most amazing experience, and uh, it has to do with the computer simulation. It's, it's, uh, this, this work has been something that's gone on for years, and so trying to put it into a, a single small interview like this is very difficult to describe. So I'm skipping a few things. And, you know, feel free to ask questions, but it all ties into computer simulation here. And -hmm. we'll get into that here in just a moment. But I do want to say this. We instinctively knew that the Great Pyramid, when we got there, was not a place of worship. It was not a burial site either. We went to several pyramids while we were there. And within the pyramids, within the burial sites, you find on the ceilings what's referred to as the duat. The duat has stars. And this was the signal for the pharaohs to remember to go to the Duat after they die. And this is where they were buried. It's very, very legit in the Great Pyramid. You have no writing whatsoever. And the way that it's built, it's impossible to navigate. I mean, you're talking about like three and a half foot wide tunnels that you go down to get all the way down into these different chambers. Making this a burial site makes absolutely no sense. But what we did before um, we went to Egypt is we have been developing a CBD oil that's infused with ayahuasca as well. It's called Life. You can get it at ayalife.com. lifecom We started sending out crystals to everybody that had ordered the Life. and we instinctively knew that we needed to create an energetic network with a bunch of people. Now, I've never been into crystals. I never really paid much mind to it, but when we got to Egypt— We realized that we needed to touch those stones and that there was information embedded within those stones. But it was only specific stones. It wasn't all the stones. And we were touching some stones, nothing. We were touching others and we were getting these downloads. Come to find out after we came back, we found out from Chris Everard, that in the pyramid texts, they actually talk about energetically embedding information within the stones. So again, this is more information that's coming out of the ayahuasca realm that's being confirmed in these ancient books. So we noticed that around the Great Pyramid, especially around the Sphinx, it was built with something called... swan limestone now it's a very specific type of limestone and these are huge 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 blocks now the great pyramid was was uh, supposedly made with rocks that came from the quarry about 40 miles away which for ancient egypts would have been a huge feat in and of itself but now we're talking about bringing these huge limestone Blocks. blocks from a swan which is a 16 hour drive by modern car. Now think about this in the ancient Egyptian level that they were bringing these huge stones, not just from 40 miles away, but they were bringing it from what? It's gotta be a thousand miles away, maybe 500, you know, but however long it takes to drive 16 hours, I would say it's maybe, yeah, maybe about uh, a thousand miles away. So they specifically use this particular type of rock because it has 30% Crystals inside of it. And this is the way they were embedding the information. They were embedding it within the crystals themselves. So we get down to the subterranean chamber and we make a discovery that people have speculated upon but there's been no physical evidence about the uh, about this up until this point and that is that the subterranean chamber is made up of the same type of limestone a specific type of limestone that is so embedded with all of these crystals now when we had chris everard on the show um we speculated there while we were in this machine That water would come up from the Nile, come up into the subterranean chamber, go up to the queen's chamber and somehow be heated, transformed or something like that that will create a, a certain type of energy. Now, when Chris saw the crystals within the subterranean chamber, he said, did you know that the crystals can do this and that to water? I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said, it's something that I've theorized this entire time. I just never had proof on it. And here you bring proof that there is a crystal type of technology being used in the subterranean chamber. And we even brought back a couple of rocks with us, which was even even more amazing. So we can actually have these rocks analyzed if we choose to do so, but these rocks are so sacred to us that I don't know if we can give them up to, for analysis. They're, they're just very sacred energetically. But it was a, it was an incredible experience. And we're detailing this at resettingthematrix.com. And if you want us to get into the energy work, we can do that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, one question I had for you, though. So you said that the, the, the Great Pyramid was not I mean, conventionally, they say it was not completed, but you're saying that that it was not intended to be a burial site. So what what was it intended to be? I mean, you described it as a machine. What was the purpose of the machine?
3: I think it had multiple purposes. So. The first purpose was a free energy type of device, and that's what operated here on the third dimension. And this is why the water from the Nile was brought up. The, the water from the Nile, I, when we t- When we were touching the stones of the pyramid, I kept getting these flashes of an oasis and palm trees. And I'm like, we're in the middle of the freaking desert. Why am I getting flashes of palm trees? Come to find out that the Nile used to actually run all the way up to the Great Pyramid, um, up to Giza. But what happened is they built the Aswan Dam, I want to say in like the 40s or 50s or something like that, and they changed the, the flow of the Nile. And so it doesn't come up to this area anymore. They cha- Egypt is like a battery. So you take the current of the battery, every battery runs on water, you take it and you mess up that current and all of a sudden it just changes the whole dynamic of everything. But when we were in the Temple of Isis, we knew that the Great Pyramid, that Egypt, was a very close to a motherboard. I think people have seen those those photos of the motherboard um, put up next to Egypt, and they look very much the same. So um, we knew that we had to touch the stones in order to get the information. But when we got the information, we were led to the Temple of Isis. Within the Temple of Isis, during this ayahuasca experience, I was shown well, it wasn't even that I was shown. It was that this information was already inside of us. We were unlocking this this information and it was coming from inside out. It wasn't being told from an external being in. It was coming from inside out that this is not only a matrix, but it has a control panel that can be accessed. But this control panel used to be in the 12th dimension, which was accessible in different ways. It didn't require a technology to access it. But uh, there was a, a situation that happened and it required the control panel to be moved up into the 13th density. And when it was moved up into the 13th density, a technology was created to project the consciousness of a programmer into the 13th density by laying in the sarcophagus using the acacia laying in the sarcophagus and getting up into this 13th density to be able to make some system changes within the matrix itself i know it sounds way 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 out there but this was the information that was revealed so the higher purpose of the great pyramid is to project the consciousness out into spaces that it can't project to um, by any conventional means. And the physical purpose of the Great Pyramid was an energy device.
1: So it was an access point.
3: It was an access point. It was essentially a Stargate. If you want to call it a Stargate. I I think Stargate is a little Mm -hmm. bit too simplistic, but yes, it was a Stargate. And we were able to access that Stargate and get into realms that... um, we weren't um able to before if you look on the back of the dollar bill you'll see the all-seeing eye over the pyramid and when we came back we counted the pyramids 13 steps we knew that we were traveling to 13 different dimensions as we were doing this, but I never put two and two together. Well, what is the all-seeing eye? The all-seeing eye is revered in many different um, places, including Freemasonry, which reveres the all-seeing eye, Christianity, where it originated, originated from. I remember we were at my mother's funeral, and I was such a conspiracy theorist at the time that we were in a Greek Orthodox church, and Cherie's here at my mother's funeral, and I'm tapping her going, look. Look at the stained glass. There's an all-seeing eye there. there. Illuminati. <laughs> and she's like, right. shut up. This is her mother's funeral. <laughs> Pay attention to what's going on. But I'm like, uh, I know
4: that's disgusting, but, but come on. <laughs> but yeah, no,
3: I found it everywhere. The all-seeing eye, yeah, from did. what I understand, Perfect. is the, it's the artificial intelligence. Yeah. It's what manifests reality around here. It's, it is the center point. It was pushed up into the 13th density um, because there are nefarious programs that I refer to as greys. They're manifesting as grey aliens. They're not supposed to be in the dimensions that they are. They figured out how to hop back and forth into dimensions. They're like rogue programs in your computer that you have a program in your D drive, and now it can access um, programs in C colon backslash Windows, which it was never designed to do, but it's it's accessing all these different areas that it's not supposed to because the firewalls have been broken and um, there's a virus running around in the system. But... um, Oh, I just lost my train of thought of where I was going with that. Um, oh, but anyways, it was it was up in the thirteenth density. So what happened during this experience in the Great Pyramid is we knew instinctively that we needed to create a Merkaba within the sarcophagus, the the male and female aspects of this. So the male aspect is the 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 pyramid upwards, and the female aspect is the diamond downwards, the half diamond. You put them together, you get a Merkaba sheree knew that she needed to go down into the 13th density negative 13th density i needed to go upwards and by both of us stretching this and kind of compressing The dimensional frequencies a little bit closer together, we were able to access these points that are a little bit further away. So as I started to go through this experience and project my consciousness upwards, um, I flew right through the 12 dimensions. I was resonated in the right frequency. I instinctively knew the passwords required. The doors were opening. Everything was unlocking perfectly. And then I hit this void space and it was all black. And I didn't expect any of this. When I got to this void space, it was like an ocean. And I found myself swimming through this void space. When I was at the temple of Isis, I was told that the pyramid is a rocket ship to propel consciousness into the 13th density. So I was expecting a blast off rocket ship type of experience. But instead I found myself pushing and pulling and pushing and pulling, trying to get to this access point, which I could see way off in the distance. But as I've got further into this void, I found myself inside of another pyramid. This was an ethereal pyramid, which made up this abyss, this void. And putting all these pieces together after the fact, it's very clear we traveled up into the all seeing eye, got into the eye itself, which is a control panel, reprogrammed some stuff, came back down here and made some system changes. As we were laying in a sarcophagus, Um, we started becoming like the fuses that were the conduits of this energy. And again, this was something that I was not prepared for. When the system changes started to take place, all of a sudden there was this charge that came down from the pyramid down into the sarcophagus. I started shaking and convulsing like I've never seen before. My knees were just bouncing all back and forth. They were hitting the sarcophagus. I bruised Sharia up really bad, and I'm like, you know, this the the the, the positive uh, the the um I don't what did I call it? I didn't call it the positive chain. Uh, the positive uh, charge. Charge. I didn't call it that right off the bat. Did I? It was only after the fact when uh oh, um, was it the no i said the system changes are taking place changes, or something like yeah. that and i was just i was just shaking and shaking and shaking and shaking and shaking um and then i calmed down a little bit and then we got hit with a negative charge which again i wasn't prepared for the negative charge and that shaking went on again for like another 30 45 minutes um while the negative charge it was like a positive and negative flow going through there and our bodies were literally becoming the fuses that were that were pushing this energy up and down through the pyramid. And I hope I've explained enough to paint the story here because it's, it's so huge and so vast. Sheree, did I, is there anything that's, you know, I mean,
4: it's, it, I think really what it was, was creating the Merkaba so that not only was there because it, it would have been an unstable environment, not just for him, but for the system changes that were taking place in general If there wasn't that grounding element of the female that was also going downwards at the exact same time. And so as far up as he went that uh, up into the 13th dimension, that's how far down I had to go to in order to. And I and I basically like we we did a kind of like a dress rehearsal of it when we were at the Temple of Isis at Philae. And she showed me this is what you're going to have to do. And um, like a snake winding itself downwards, you know, through all of the negative dimensions all the way to the base of this reality. And then clamping down on the bottom of it so that it would ground him sufficiently so that these system changes wouldn't just take place in, you know, the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, and thirteenth dimension. It also had to take place in these lower dimensions as well, or it was for naught. I mean, it it all had to be completely balanced and equalized and working in conjunction with each other. And it was it was the hardest thing That we have ever done.
3: The longer I stayed up there, the more I felt the tether breaking. And I really thought that I was not coming back from the experience. I just. Oh, he prepared. I instinctively knew a week before this was happening that there was a good possibility that I wasn't coming back. I prepared a document for Cherie. Um, on how TFR runs, I started telling everybody goodbye, um, and, and I love them. I didn't tell them flat out, you know, cause I, I didn't want to sound weird, but I was sending everybody messages, just letting them know, Hey, um, I love you. You're very special in my life, et cetera, et cetera. And then we went to this, this, this event. So, um, as this was happening, I felt the tether breaking and breaking. And as I was up in the 13th dimension, it was almost as if the 13 dimensional self, took over and the existence of Chris Geo and this reality began to fade so much. I saw the portal open. I mean, the portal was right there. I could have very well easily stepped through the portal and just exited the matrix right then and right there. But that wasn't what I went to do. I went to go to, to do something and come back here for a particular reason. So um, it was just amazing how. I was forgetting who Chris Gio was. Mm -hmm. And this is when the body was shaking the most. I mean, I really think that the body was coming very, very, very close to death as all of this, this energy was being passed through it. But then I started to remember who Chris Gio was, and I started to say, "Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's two things going on here. There's a third dimension here. And from the perspective, I could see the sarcophagus, and I can see my body almost as if I was looking from from the the top of the atmosphere down into the pyramid. It was it was the strangest the strangest scene. And I'm 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 this 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 white." plasma like being working up in the 13th and I'm looking down and I can see this tether tied to my body. And I'm like, I remember, wait a minute. I remember I'm both. I'm the 13th and I'm the third. I'm the 13th and the third. I'm Chris Gio. And I'm, I'm the energy that I'm, 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 I, I am right now as I'm working. And I started sending codes back to my body saying, stop seizing, seizing equals damage. Stop doing this. And the body started calming down and I was able to work in that 13th a little bit longer, but it was a very, very intense experience with a lot of things that were not expected. And when we got back, there was a depression that came over me because we had Oh, I remember that
2: too. Yeah. Some of your Facebook posts, they were just very revealing and we were very concerned. Stephanie and I were really worried about you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. It was, it was intense. And um, when you break all the illusions and then come back, you have to reintegrate into the illusion again.
4: And it's like,
3: I, we did not expect all of this. Uh, it's
4: well, not even reintegrating back into the the illusion, but knowing that it's an illusion and living inside of it at the same time. It's like knowing that it, you're not living in a house; you're actually living in a dollhouse, and you know it's a dollhouse, and everybody else thinks it's like a real house, and it's it's very surreal. And the when we when we first came back. Um, and we, and we went on to Greece cause we thought, okay, we need to go and decompress in Greece after all this, the first night we were there, I sat in the bathtub and I just cried and cried and cried and cried. And I just, I could not stop crying because it was just, it took so much out of both of us that it, it, it was, it was like thousands of years of pent up energy just being released all at once. It was so intense.
3: It was the fulfillment of an ancient Dharma dharma and an ancient destiny that has been worked on for so long. But, um, you know, one of the things that makes it even more realer is, number one, the floods, the rains that kept coming down, the three-dimensional outcomes after the after everything we were doing. But um, most importantly, the ebb and flow and the up and down of the positive-negative charges that not only took place in the sarcophagus but afterwards as well. Um, if it was… In, in my opinion, just a crazy elaborate psychedelic experience, which I'm not taking off the table. And some people will interpret this as the most historic and e- epic, epic and elaborate psychedelic experience in the history of the world. <laughs> anyway, you look at it, it was freaking epic as hell. And it's all on <laughs> video. But right. um there was the there was the the up and down the depression the uh, unexpected events going into the void and thinking that it's going to be a rocket ship and finding out that it's actually a struggle to get up there it makes the experiences that much more real because it's not something the mind was manifesting because if the mind was manifesting, we would have come back with shit between our eyes and going, Oh, look how enlightened we are. We communicated with the goddesses and gods, et cetera, et cetera. And here's all the gnosis. And it's like, no, we came back like we had gone to war and we came yeah. back with PTSD essentially. So it made it that much more real for me. Um, but Olaf, I, I know that, uh, Ron has been, um, keeping up with all of this. I know that you're probably not too familiar with the story up to this point. How has it, mm-hmm. how has it been explained to you? And are there any questions?
1: Well, I think you did a, an amazing job of trying to articulate it. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've read of people's, uh, psychedelic experiences and they always have trouble articulating it because Whatever you're seeing, I myself have not done that kind of stuff, and for my own reasons, I won't. But it there there's always, I think, in general for humans that when we experience something of that magnitude, that words fail you, and you can't. It becomes very difficult to articulate it. I, I always go back to there's a, a story that Buzz Aldrin says i have my own beliefs about why this occurred the way it occurred but conventionally uh he he describes a a party that he went to after he came back from the moon and somebody walked up to him and and asked a perfectly rational reasonable question you know what what was it like to be on the moon right and i mean it's a reasonable question take the conspiracy stuff out of it that's another show (laughs) but And, you know, it's a reasonable, I've never been to the moon. What's it like up there? You know, and he said that his mind went blank and he could not explain what it was like. And the only thing that he could say was magnificent desolation. And then he ran to the bathroom and threw up. And I I have my own beliefs on what that event actually means, but it's Mm -hmm. what he named his book. And. To this day, he really cannot describe to you conventionally. Again, the, he cannot describe to you what it was like to actually walk on the moon. In the you know, a lot of it was mechanical. Okay, we've got a mission. I'm in the military. I'm going to do these things. I have to take soil samples. We need to run over here. I need to fix the solar panels on this thing. I need to drive the rover around. Whatever, right? But once you step away from that. And you're standing there and just thinking to yourself, I'm a human. I'm on the moon. Nobody else has been here before, supposedly. And, um, you know, what does that, what does that really mean? And, and in those moments, words fail you. So, <clears throat> you know, I've had events in my life that I, I cannot articulate. I, I cannot describe it. So I, I think you did a, an amazing job of trying to articulate <laughs> what exactly you experienced and the, the analogies are good. And, and I, I got a pretty decent picture and think of what you experienced, but I really, you know, you described it well enough that I, I get it. Um, I just, I really have one question that, that I was thinking of the entire time you were describing this. And I think it really comes down to what, what is, since you were able to access the control panel so to speak at this 13th dimension and and you said that that you started to download information and you started to understand things what is the purpose of the simulation
3: in my humble opinion the simulation was originally created to be a university that's why we call it a universe. A
4: place it was learning. a place
3: of learning. It was a place of being able to experience some things that we as infinite beings could not experience. And the most important thing that we could not experience was what it's like to be finite. So we created experiences that have a beginning and an end. We have the birth and death experiences and we do this over and over and over again um, for fun or for learning or for spiritual evolution. Um, the other hypothesis is that this is also a testing ground for um, some souls before they're released into the real world because um, if you have the kind of mentality that some of the consciousness have here and you take that into a real world you can cause real damage where here in a simulation they can mess things up as much as, po- as, much as they want and it can be fixed with computer code um, and so it, they have to go through the experiences of the darkness and the Light And all of that in order to be able to be the divine uh, beings that are infinite. And by infinite, I've come to realize that it's not necessarily infinite in the sense that there is no beginning, but there is no end. There is a beginning what I've understood is that the way consciousness is um, created in the real world is that it's split into two or an S uh, the part of one creator is taken and merged with another part of another creator, very similar to the way that we create a baby here. But the difference is that once we create that baby, that baby then becomes a sentient being in and of itself and it becomes an adult and has its own experience. It's no longer tied to a source consciousness as the new age, likes to tell us that we're all going to return to source. When 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 a consciousness is created, it becomes a divine sentient being, and it has to go through a process, a learning process, before it can be put out into the world. As a matter of fact, in the temple of Hatshepsut, Sheree had this very interesting experience. It's one that it's still very difficult for me to listen to, because we are twin flames we're twin souls um, and the new age dogma is that you know there' they're souls that are split in two and so on and so forth but she had this vision that, that if I had this vision I would immediately write it off as ego and I would say no that's impossible that's ridiculous but Cherie, if you want to go into that vision uh, into what you experienced at the temple of Hatshepsut and the splitting of the two um, it might it might be powerful for some,
4: okay, well, so I you know i'm ex i I was really ill for the first two weeks leading up to this, and I Thought I I took basically an overdose of ayahuasca because I wasn't I wasn't um, aware that I was actually taking twice the dose that I thought I was, and so I wasn't prepared for the intensity of this. And I had an experience where I mean, just to kind of um, condense it down a little bit for you, I had this experience where I was uh, I went to a mentee and there was a library there and. Um, I was told that that was where the Akashic records are kept and that every book that's ever been written here is actually copied up there and kept there. And I, I, I saw Kanoom. I saw hecate I, they, you know, they were the two that, that really greeted me. Um, I was on a boat, um, the solar barge. Um, and I, I knew nothing, I literally nothing about Kanoom, hecate the solar barge, any of this. I, I did very little research on Egyptian mythology before we even went. And so, um, all of this was confirmed to me after the experience um, about who these beings were and what they were doing. And after I was shown um, how the, the ancient writings were done and it was um, a right to left, beautiful language that is, I mean, I, the best way I can describe it is like this holy language that was being shown to me. And Um, It was such a divine language that it wasn't allowed to be in existence in this plane and only up there. And I um, and then the whole environment just kind of switched because I asked, you know, where did I come from? Who am I? And they Show and they and the environment switched really quickly to like a back background that was more technological. I mean, it went from being gold and pink and you know almost like a what Christians would describe as heaven kind of environment to a an almost like a spaceship kind of environment where everything's black and and gray and technological. And that I saw Chris in you know in an ancient form and a like a laser beam came down from the top and cut him in half. And I could tell it was actually cutting him in half. It was It looked extremely painful. He had this look of agony on his face while this was happening. And then the, the left part of him, you know, the, what I saw as the right, but really it's like the left part of him kind of went off and, and faded into like a blob. Um, type of thing.
3: Plasma, would you say? Yeah,
4: plasma blob. Uh, Everything was
3: plasma.
4: Plasma blob is the best way to describe this. And then um, it was handed to Knoom, and then Knoom put it on this, um, like a potter's wheel type of thing, and he molded me out of that half that that was Chris. And that's, I mean, that's how they explained to me that i'm literally his other half i mean it's it sounds cliche but it's literally yeah, and you can imagine like the
3: other half from my perspective how i'm like well no that's very ego type stuff like, right well, yeah, i'm so going to be so egotistical to think that i split myself in half to to create, to create you another being like this but she had this experience. No,
4: I had this experience all on my own. I
3: didn't see any of this. Yeah, and not... so I'm still having a hard time processing this and, um, and and reconciling all of this. But if there is truth to that experience about how souls are created in the real world, how consciousness is created in the real world, then it can very well go right back to the analysis that the machine is created to test and mold a lot of this consciousness. I mean, maybe the potter's wheel that you saw Kanum working on is actually the matrix and the soul going through that process, the wheel of um, the matrix right, experiences while it's being molded into a divine creator being.
4: Because as I understand it, ayahuasca is a lot about allegory. And so allegorically, that could have been what it was trying to show me. So, wow. yeah. Ron, what do you think, Ron?
2: (laughs) It's pretty heavy stuff. And it is. You guys are actually going to be putting out a documentary in December, right?
3: Uh, We were shooting for December, but I think we're delayed a little bit. So it'll come sooner than later. But um, you can sign up for the mailing list at resettingthematrix.com and um, we'll send out an email to everybody. It's a free documentary. We're not trying to capitalize on this or anything like that. It's I didn't even want to tell the story when we got back. I was like, no, I'm done. There's nothing else to do here. I don't care if people know about this. It was just the fact that the work got done. Mm-hmm. And the energies obviously were like, no, you got to tell the story. You got to tell the story. Yeah, but then we found the out after the fact there's actually another access point that needs to be accessed. Yep. And I Story's not over. <laughs> I hope to goddess that there is not another one after that cuz I don't know how many more of these I can do, right? <laughs> Somebody you guys was, are also You guys are also
2: going to be writing an article for Paranoia magazine for our winter issue coming up, right?
3: Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. We have that on awesome. the um. We we have that in the works right now, and we were thinking more along the lines of pyramid technology rather mm-hmm. than right. the journey to Egypt uh, to make okay. it a little more palatable for a wider audience. Mm-hmm. But sure. uh, I know the stuff we get into is 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 pretty heavy, and we try to simplify it the best we can for a broader audience. But mm-hmm. like Olaf said, experiencing it is one thing. Communicating it is another. But Mm -hmm. um, I think what at the end of the day, what you can take from this is that we're in a simulation and you have the power inside of you to make the simulation however you want it to be. You can mold it into a positive reality. You can mold it into a negative reality. Thought is very, very powerful. With the words we speak, we are casting spells every time we speak. The mainstream media is casting spells upon us. Um, They're doing it on an energetic level, too. So, for example, in the Gulf War, they were invoking the goddess Shekinah when they were saying Shakinah, Shakinah, Shakinah over and over and over again. The Semitic root of the word Shekinah means to settle, inhabit, and dwell. They were invoking Shekinah through the mass consciousness, the collective consciousness, Mm -hmm. so they can settle, inhabit, and dwell within the Middle East. And they were successful in doing so. Isis resonates the frequency of compassion, motherly love, empathy, things like that. And they were telling us that ISIS is a terrorist organization that chops people's heads off. So the entire world is screaming, fear ISIS, kill ISIS, destroy ISIS. But what they're actually doing on an energetic level is fearing the compassion, killing the love and destroying the empathy within the human consciousness, within the collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. So in order to break free of all of this, you have to understand that we are in a simulation. Everything is a program from uh, the stuff that we put into our body to the stuff that we put into our minds. And they even call it. Television programming radio programming, you know, it's everything is a program, but understanding how the system works You understand that you can change the program from the inside out Mm -hmm. and when you start to change the inside the outside starts to change all around you
2: Right. I mean there's so many times where people want to try to change the world change everybody else except for themselves and i've always you know thought about that how we really need to do the inside work before we do the outside work. But uh, And, you know, the other thing that seems really evident now is the intense conflict that's going on uh, within smaller groups and, you know, both the macro and micro level. And uh, i sure you guys can attest to that with what's been going on in Facebook, social media, and just our family relationships and our personal relationships as well
3: you're absolutely right definitely you know the path that we were walking is our path and um it's not a path that everybody walks Ayahuasca is a tool that we choose to utilize. It's not a tool for everybody. Um, So people don't have to feel like they have to walk a certain path. You know, this was the first realization that there are many truths in this matrix was the Mandela effect. Because I realized that some people legitimately remember Berenstain and others legitimately remember Berenstain. There's two very distinct truths for two different types of consciousness. Now take that on an individual level and you realize that there are different types of truth for each and every one of us so um it's about changing the reality for yourself around you and then everybody's reality will change when they start changing their own reality it becomes like a it becomes the 10,000 monkey effect where you have one monkey that eats right, a mushroom right. and then ten thousand ten thousand 10,000 years later they're creating pyramids and projecting their consciousness up into the 13th density
2: right and then you kind of create a harmony even though there might be people on different frequencies you can still harmonize them on different levels
3: Yes. Seemingly. Yes, exactly. And engaging them on different levels yes. and engaging them on the levels that are really going to resonate and really going to be fruitful for your energy. That's what yes. it's about. It's about preserving your energy and using it wisely. Um, everything is energy in the matrix and, uh, it's beautiful to come to these revelations. And I have to say that the manifestation abilities, the telepathy between Sheree and I has never been as strong as it was wow. when we realized this was a computer simulation and the power is inside of each and every one of us. And life has never been as good as it is right now.
2: That's really good to hear. Olaf, what do you think about the show tonight? Wow. Heavy. <laughs>
1: heavy good stuff. i don't know if i'd say heavy but fascinating yeah i'd use
2: the word fascinating heavy we just we scratched the surface negativity. oh yeah yeah so this is more of the abridged version but uh yeah. there's yeah. other shows to come for sure we really appreciate you guys coming yeah. on tonight
3: Thank you for having us on and thank you for giving us the floor like this and letting us get this message out. I I feel like every time we do an interview, we don't let anybody talk. And, you know, Clyde is really good about jumping in and cutting people off. And so, you know, I I appreciate that, but I also appreciate being given the floor. And I I thank you guys very much for that.
2: You're no
1: problem. You know, yeah, we, that's our objective with our podcast is to, Explore topics. You know, when when it's just me and Ron, we do Conspiracy 101. Okay, let's go pick something that people may not know about. You know, Project Dizorian. Most people don't know what that is, so let's talk about that. But Mm -hmm. when we do have a guest, we try very hard to allow the the person, or people in this case, um, to express what they want to express and to get their story across. And I think that's very important. I just try to augment it with a few questions here and there, but (laughs) it was wonderful. It was very interesting. I'm going to go watch the videos. You have to, you have to tell us, uh, where people can find the videos and, and where they can find you guys.
3: Resettingthematrix.com is the website that we created for this particular journey. Um, we have the raw footage from the ayahuasca ceremony within the temple of Hachepsut, which we live streamed on Facebook. The actual drinking of the ayahuasca and everything else <laughs> uh-huh. that freaked a lot of people out. Um, I'm surprised that we didn't get arrested. I, I really am because they were arresting journalists. And people for posting on Facebook, like two, uh, like a week after oh, we left, 10 days. there was a mass arrest of a bunch of people yep. for just saying, yeah. just talking about Egyptian government. There was one girl who was saying that she was sexually assaulted in a bank mm-hmm. um, and uh, she was complaining about it and uh, they another, went in ar- they they arrested her.
4: Yeah. And another one was complaining that she was sexually harassed as a tourist there. And they arrested her and gave her seven years in prison.
3: Yeah. So we had a lot of protection protective yeah, we energy did. around us. We really and I think did. that's what we were streaming on Facebook for because people were aware they were manifesting the reality around us. They were manifesting the protective barrier around us. Uh I mean, you know, Ron uh and, and Steph they watched um us being taken into the desert and almost executed, like execution style <laughs> live on Facebook. And we managed to wow. get out of that situation. I think it was because of the energy that people and the protective energy that we people were putting out there. Um, but we have the footage of the Temple of Isis uh, up there as well, the the raw footage. And uh, in the Temple of Isis, we did a whole cleansing ritual. We took water from the Nile. Um, and it's, it's the coolest footage, in my opinion, because it's in the middle of the night. And you don't get this kind of footage where it's like Indiana Jones style. You've got bats flying around, and we've got the flashlights going, and we're filming this, and everybody's covering their eyes. And I'm like, look at the bats i'm I'm like batman in there (laughs) i think i even said that when we got to the holy of holies i was like oh you think darkness is your ally you merely adopted the dark (laughs) we were having fun with it we were we you know we're not gurus we're not anything like that we're real um and so we were having fun we were there was some excuse my language can i cuss for a moment yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. There was there was, <laughs> there was there was there was some fuckery on this journey, you know? Yes, it, was. it wasn't all serious. <laughs> it was a balance of of all kinds of stuff. And it 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 manifested into something that for us is obviously going to be a lifelong experience. And um it's actually a historic experience. I mean, I don't think anybody has used psychedelics in the Great Pyramid, at least that I know of, in modern times. And uh, the acacia, as I said, was very, very important in ancient Egypt. And we brought not only the acacia back to Egypt, so we were pouring ayahuasca on the temple grounds, like in, that, in the temple of Hatshepsut. We see. were baptizing yeah.
4: it in good energy. I purged and... all
3: over the all over the king's chamber. Yes, <laughs> like, he did. Ayahuasca came up, and it's all over the floor of the king's chamber. <laughs> it's insane, oh, wow. but I think that. There was an energetic thing to it, like bringing the acacia back. We took the water from the Nile and cleansed the temples. And uh, some of the things that we were getting chastised about by people is that we were touching the stones. And they're like, "Oh my God, these are ancient stones. How can you touch them?" And these are, you know, westerners here watching the videos who are chastising us on YouTube. And it's like, guys, we have to touch the stones, okay? This this is important. It's important to touch the stone. That was the whole purpose was to touch the stones. Um, so it was, it was, it, it was incredible. And guys, thank you yeah, again really for, was. for, um, for having us thank on. You. Olaf, let me, let me ask you this. Um, you, you mentioned conspiracies. What is your favorite conspiracy and what would you say has the most weight?
1: Um, my, my particular, uh, conspiracy that I'm obsessed with is something called alternative three.
3: Alternative it, three. Yeah.
1: It was, a. It was a documentary, well, it was a, how should I put it? It was a, um, not a real documentary. It was a made-for-TV documentary made in 77. And it purported to outline the end of the world, that the end of the world was coming and that they had devised uh, three three alternatives to try to solve the problem or to survive it. And it involves a secret space program, you know, the vast uh, government conspiracies that exist in the world and and basically, you know, the apocalypse. So it kind of, I call it the end game, you know, the end game of the Illuminati or the end game of all conspiracies because it's like a blueprint and it's, it's come to pass. As far as what holds the most weight, you know, I'll tell you, a lot of conspiracies, you know, they, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I mean, you can't. Some of this stuff is so crazy that that you can't you can't invent it, you know, but it's the, what the do you alternative think? three thing is I've been obsessed with
3: for years. What so. do you think of the biggest conspiracy of all? And that is that there is no conspiracy. Dennis McKenna was on our show and I'm like you know what do you think about New World Order and all that and he's like look it's no no he's like nobody is in control of this he's like this thing is out of control people are clutching at straws and he said this to me like four or five years ago and I never I never really gave it any thought because I was like what is this guy like Illuminati is he trying to you know (laughs) to trick me but um, as I started thinking about it I started thinking maybe there is no conspiracy maybe that's the big conspiracy of all
2: well, I mean, people you know, I, I conspire d- to do acts, you know, of secrecy yeah, exactly. and do harm to others. That's essentially what a conspiracy is. But in the bigger right. picture, I, I can see why uh, Dennis would say something like that. Yeah. yeah we,
1: I, I think it's—I think—I um, wouldn't
2: say it's out of control. I, actually, I think
1: it's perfectly under control. But I, I think that they— Whoever they is, I I use they <clears throat> to represent that group, and I, I think they have an objective. They have an objective and a motive, and I think a lot a lot of the things that you see in geopolitics are are manufactured, you know, as control points. And I think the wars are manufactured to control the populace. It's the Eurasia and East Asia versus Oceania, Oceania and East Asia versus Eurasia kind of rotation of who's the bad guy this week. So, you know, and it all serves as a control medium. And on a larger scale, it it serves to obscure what they're really doing, which is preparing for something.
3: So I agree with you on that. You know, we were accused by some diehard Christians of um starting the apocalypse <laughs> we did in Egypt. We opened um, the
4: doorway to hell. We
3: opened up a doorway to hell. We brought demons back with us. Oh, here's an interesting story to share with you guys. So, um when we were there, we created a firewall around the sarcophagus with Sekmet. And it was funny because um Sekmet when we did the Sekmet meditation, uh, the 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 volcano in hawaii erupted the same time we were doing the Sekhmet meditation and i i didn't put the two together but somebody on facebook connected it i don't know if you guys have have had uh, solaris blue raven on but um she's really oh, fascinating i
2: talked to her oh, in the past so yeah, yeah. I know.
3: She's a fascinating character, and she's the one that made the connection. And she said, You know, there's a ley line that connects the Temple of Karnak to this volcano here. And Sekmet is the fire goddess, and um Pele is her name in Hawaii. And I said, No, that's interesting. I I never made that connection, but other people are making this connection. But we knew instinctively to create a firewall around the sarcophagus, a firewall from the fire goddess. And I didn't even connect this until later. But, anyways, so um Oh, can you hear me? Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, Okay. Okay. I didn't know if we dropped out or not. So um, I noticed that there were other beings that were surrounding the sarcophagus while we were there and they were outside of the firewall and they couldn't get past the firewall while we were doing this. We took a lot of measures to to protect and to create uh, the space. So um, the beings looked like gray aliens and this is what in the temple of isis it was kind of unlocked and remembered was that the grays have been running amok and hijacking consciousness and they're 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 in places they're not supposed to be but when we came back, one of our listeners on Facebook said, "Hey, have you heard of Aaron Donahue? I don't know if you guys have heard of this guy. He was a remote viewer that worked with Major Ed Dames, and he was a Luciferian Satanist kind of guy. And I remember hearing him hearing him on Art Bell many, many, many years ago. yeah, and art had many, to
1: proclaim
3: yes, yes. Art proclaimed his Christianity a thousand times during that show while he was talking to Aaron Donahue. I guess he really wanted to drive the point home that he did not agree with Aaron Donahue. Um, But uh, Ed Ed Dames really revered Aaron Donahue as a, a very skilled remote viewer. So this guy on Facebook, he sends me a link to Aaron Donahue's work. Um, And Aaron Donahue remote viewed the 72 demons of the Goetia. Now, we've heard these stories of Aleister Crowley going to the Great Pyramid to try to invoke the 72 demons of the Goetia within the king's chamber. So we're looking at all these greys around us. We don't think anything of it. We come back and the remote viewing pictures that this guy sent. Looked exactly like the beings that were surrounding us at the at in the sarcophagus. So as we were moving through the 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 temple, I mean, through the through the pyramid, through the pyramid. Uh, yeah. We were in the queen's chamber, exiting the queen's chamber, and we were making a video. And Cherie says, "You know, oh, whatever Aleister Crowley and other idiots like that tried to do, it's just not working because this is a technological this is a te- place. This, is a this t- isn't a spiritual Yeah, it's not a spiritual place to unleash demons and do all of this." But then when we saw the remote viewing pictures, Mm -hmm. we were like, maybe he was successful and maybe that's who was watching us at the at the during this event. It was very, very strange to see. Um, But I, I mean, I think the Christians might have something there that, you know, this was used for nefarious reasons. But I assure everybody who's listening that we did not. We did bring not demons bring demons in. Bring demons. We created firewalls to keep any to keep entity out of there. we could have been us. the most benevolent entity in the world. We were not taking any entities up there with us. No. And we locked the portal. We changed the locks. We changed the passwords and sealed it back good. up. So yeah. I assure you, they're not open to anything. But you know what What happened, though? Since we got back, people are remembering there's almost as if this veil has been lifted over consciousness. And we're getting dozens and dozens of emails every day, still to this point saying, hey, something shifted in the, uh, after this Great Pyramid event. And As a yeah. matter of fact, um, the Great Pyramid started to act funny after this event. We were there and there was this weird humming. I didn't talk about this, but there was this weird humming that took place. And we've got that video there where you can actually hear this humming um, after we mm-hmm. activated the first two chambers. But anyways, the Great Pyramid has been heating up. It's been um, – uh, I forget what else it was doing. Uh, oh, there was an electromagnetic waves that were being picked up there. And uh, I think Clyde actually talked about this as well and, and all the weird stuff that's happening in the activations of the Great Pyramid. So that's a whole other show there. But I know you've let us talk for two hours, so I don't want to keep you guys too long. No, no, it's
1: fine. It's fine. Yeah, we should probably wrap it up.
2: <laughs> yeah, man. This is the longest uh, <laughs> podcast of all time. I
3: think so. <laughs> Well, yeah. I want to get you guys on. I yeah. want to get you guys on very soon. And Definitely. I want to get you guys on video, too. And uh, we've oh, got oh. we've got a couple hundred people watching on YouTube and Facebook. So uh, they're loving oh, wow. it in the chat room. And we want to know more about Olaf and Ron. So when you guys come on, we're going to shut up. We're going to give you guys the floor. And uh, we'll get into everything that you guys want to talk about.
2: But I'm a Luciferian chill. You don't want me on. <laughs>
3: Hey, yeah, you know a, I'm an Illuminati stooge.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's something we were. I I was called anyway, and it was like, oh, okay. I guess we can just throw out labels and names, and you know, I'll, I guess I'll be one for the day, and then maybe I'll be, you know, the angel of enlightenment the next day or something. I don't know.
3: It's all a reflection. Yeah. People yeah. Ref- people yeah. see in you what's inside of them, and yeah, so that's what I've come rejection. to realize.
2: Yeah. A lot of projection going
3: on yeah um I, I i know you guys can see me on the camera i move right. my hands a lot when i talk so somebody recently took a freeze frame of me doing this and said that's a masonic symbol it means on the level <laughs> I'm, like, I'm talking about something completely and totally unrelated oh, yeah. and i'm yeah. i'm greek and yeah. italian and i'm like hey you know this is the way i talk <laughs> but no people are funny people are that's what they do so you know That is true. All right. Well, we better,
1: we better wrap this thing up. So again, thank you for coming on. It was very interesting. Uh, we're going to have you back on to talk about it more. I know you just scratched the surface, but thanks again for coming on. It was very, very interesting.
3: Thank you guys. You guys are amazing hosts. The energy is freaking awesome. And, um, looking forward to, um, Uh, to speaking to you guys. I got a quick question for you. Maybe this is better off air, but um, how long are your podcasts? Are they about an hour?
1: They're generally about an hour.
3: Okay. (laughs) Okay, because I was thinking we can run them on we can run them on TFR if you'd like, if they're an a- actually like exactly an hour long, we have a system where you can just upload them and they'll, they'll play, um, whenever we schedule it. So if you guys are interested in that, let us know. Cause we love, yeah. we love the show and, um, it would be some good exposure for you guys. We'll talk more about it on Facebook, but I just wanted to put that bug in your ear. Absolutely.
2: That, that would be great. Right. We'd love that.
1: That'd be fantastic. All right. Well, uh, again, it has been another thrilling podcast with some amazing guests, uh, As I always say at the end of all these things, uh, be excellent to each other, Ron, and
2: take good care and keep the faith. All right. Bye, everybody.
0: Thank you for listening to Paranoia Radio, hosted by Olaf Phillips and Ron Patton, sponsored by Paranoia Magazine. Read it now. Paranoiamagazine.com. Intro theme, The Guide is composed by Scott Moon, scottmoon.net. Outro theme, Fighting Trousers, is by Professor Elemental, professorelemental.com. Voice over written and performed by Mr. Lobo, host of Cinema Insomnia. Watch new episodes on OSI 74 visit us at OSI74.com. We are resuming control for now.